Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Happy New Year to each and every one of you. I trust you had a glorious New Year's Day on Saturday, and I trust the Lord will bless today as we join together. Let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you today for uh, your word. We thank you for the privilege of being here. We thank you for another year in which we can serve you, Father. We thank you that uh, your word never changes, just as you never change. And we thank you that, Lord, your truth is just as truthful today as it was the day it was given. We pray that, Lord, as we look into your word this morning, that you would uh, open our hearts and our minds of understanding and help us, Father God, to glean from your word today what you would have for us. Challenge us by it, we pray. Bless us by it, we pray. Pray that you'd help me, Father God, to just have clarity of thought and able to simply explain the truths of your word in this very familiar story. Father God, we might uh, glean some fresh blessings from it as we study together today. And we'll be sure to give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. A few days after Christmas, a family was busy cleaning up, putting away the Christmas decorations. And as they took down the Christmas tree, their son asked, why are we putting away all our Christmas stuff? The mum answered, so everything will be back to normal. And the house will be clean. Christmas only lasts a few days. Or a few weeks, sorry. The boy responded, I don't want things to get back to normal just yet. On this first Sunday after Christmas, many of us may have thought Christmas is over. Let's pack up everything. After all, the presents have been handed out. The carols have been sung. The Christmas food has been consumed it's over let's move on i wonder though if we don't rush away from christmas a little too quickly we do too good a job of cleaning up after christmas quite possibly we run the risk of removing it and the story of christmas from our lives now i'm not saying that we shouldn't pack up the christmas decorations because we should okay that's not what i'm saying what I am saying is, let's not pack up the story and the message of Christmas with those decorations. You know, it's amazing me, you know, we celebrate Christmas in December, and then we don't talk about it again, basically, for the rest of the year. And yet it's such a significant event, it's such an important time of the year. And so uh, my challenge today is, let's not pack up the story of Christmas and the message of Christmas with the decorations. And with that in mind, today and next week, I want to look at the story of the visit of the wise men who came from the east searching for Jesus. And in today's passage in Matthew chapter 2 here, we find the Herod, the religious leaders, and the wise men were going about their lives when an extraordinary event took place, the birth of the king of the Jews broke into their lives. And each of them responded differently to the announcement of the birth of the Messiah. And in the response of these three, Herod, the religious leaders and the wise men, we see the ways in which people today respond to Christ. Nothing has changed. And so in the response of these three groups of people, or these three, uh, Herod, the religious leaders and the wise men, we see important lessons that you and I can learn with regard to our response to Christ. 
And firstly, we want to have a look at Herod. You know, Herod responded with antagonism and fear. He responded with antagonism and fear. Look in verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now we know the story. I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know. We know the story. The wise men knew there was a new king born because God has miraculously made a star appear in the east. And they saw that star. They recognized that star. They understood that that star was significant. And it was announced in the birth of a newborn king. And so they come from the east. They travel over to Bethlehem, actually to Jerusalem initially, so they might see where this young child was born. It says that in verse 2, saying, Where is the he that is born, king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. They knew that this was the king of the Jews. They knew the star identified the newborn king of the Jews. And so they follow the star to Jerusalem. And they make their way to the obvious place when you get to the capital of the city of Israel. When you get to the capital, the obvious place to go is the palace of the king. So they go to the palace of Herod. Because if there's a new king born, that new king will be born surely in the royal palace. So they make their way to the royal palace and they inquire of the king where this new child, new king was. In verse 1 we read, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. They came to Herod the king. Now we know that Herod was a powerful man. He was an educated man. And on top of that, Herod was an influential man. His kingship was powerful. But he was also a man that was deeply troubled and scared by the events of that day. In verse 3 it says, When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled. He was scared. He was fearful. And all Jerusalem with him. Far from being excited about the birth of a baby, far from being excited by the birth of a king, far from far by being excited by the good news that he just received, of the coming of the Messiah, he was troubled when he heard about a competitor being born. He was fearful. And that fear caused him to respond with antagonism towards Christ. In fact, he was so fearful that in response to the news, he ordered the murder of all baby boys under the age of two. Look in verse 16. Then Herod when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wrath and sent forth and slew all children that were in Bethlehem and all the coasts thereof from two years old and under. He had all the babies two years of age and under killed because of the news that a baby had been born. The reason why Herod feared this new king was because he thought that he would lose his throne. And that he would lose all that he enjoyed in life. This was a threat to him as king. A new king, uh, the Messiah, was a threat to his royal reign. It was a threat to his kingdom. It was a threat to his authority. It was a threat to who he was. His influence was going to be changed. He was fearful 
and troubled because he feared what might happen with this new king. And in Matthew chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 and, verses, and verse 16, we see Herod's pretense and Herod's plan with regards to this matter. You know, he, Herod made a pretense that he wanted to worship Christ. But that was not the case at all. Look at verse 7. It says, that when Herod, Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When Herod told them, to go to Bethlehem and bring word back again to him, it was not so that he could go and worship them, even though that's what he told them. He was not going to go and worship them. He lied to them. That was not his intent. He was planning to work the situation to his advantage. In this story, what we see is the deception of Herod because of the fear that was brought on by the knowledge that a new king had been born he deceives the wise men. He tells them a lie. Says, I want to go and worship him. But he has no intention of doing that whatsoever. You see, Herod saw Jesus as a threat to his throne. Not someone to be worshipped. And we know from history, the story of Herod the king, we know from history that when Herod felt that his throne was threatened, he dealt with those threats by killing any opposition. History tells us that Herod killed one of his wives and her brother, who was high priest, and two of his eldest sons because he saw them as a threat to his throne. When he says, I want to go and worship the king, he didn't mean it. And when he tells the wise man to come back, he didn't mean it. So when the wise men announced that there was a newborn king of the Jews, Herod felt threatened. And so Herod resorts to the normal pattern of dealing with those who challenged him and decreed that all male children under the age of two be killed. We read that in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wrath and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in the, all the coasts thereof from two years old and under according to the time which he had diligently acquired of the wise men. See, that's why he asked the question in verse 7. He said, what time the star appeared? He diligently asked them, inquired of them diligently, what time the star appeared? He wanted to work out how old this child might be. Because we know from this story in Matthew that when the wise men do arrive, they arrive at the house, not at the stable. So this is sometime after the birth. Christ has been moved from the place where he was born when he was laid in that manger and now Mary and Joseph are residing in a house somewhere in Bethlehem. And Herod wants to identify how far, how long a period of time had lapsed from when they saw the star in the east and to when they're standing there in his presence. And so obviously two years have elapsed. That doesn't mean that the baby is necessarily two years old. It could well be. But uh, their time from them seeing the star to them arriving in Jerusalem is two years around about. And so Herod inquires on the diligently what time the star appeared. Why? Because verse 16 tells us that he was going to kill all male children two years of age and under according to the time which he had diligently acquired the wise men. 
He wanted to determine how old the child was. And so when the wise men didn't return, and he didn't, he didn't know how old this child was, this information was very helpful to him. You see, Herod had a serious problem. He feared that Jesus would change everything, and that's why he responded with antagonism to the news and secretly arranged the murder of Jesus. You know, the sad thing about this story is that Herod passed up an opportunity to meet and come to know the king of the Jews. Simply because of his fear that Jesus would change everything. Herod was antagonistic to Christ because he feared what he might lose. And that's sad. Instead of seeing what he would gain from the Messiah coming, instead of seeing what he would gain from the Messiah being in his presence, seeing what he would gain by spending time with the Lord, he rejected Jesus Christ because he was troubled in his heart. He missed out on salvation. He missed out on the forgiveness of sins. He missed out on eternal life simply because he feared what Christ might do. And that truly is sad. But you know there are many today who won't accept Christ because of the same reason. They fear what it might mean to be saved. They fear that Christ may interfere with their career. They fear that Christ might interfere with their position or their power or their ambition. They fear that Jesus Christ, if they trust him as their saviour, he will interfere with their plans, with their family, with their lifestyle. And they're not about to let someone else be king over their lives. We live in a generation today where some people see Jesus as a threat. Just as Herod did. And there are many today who are going to miss out on Christ. And they're going to miss out on salvation just because, like Herod, they're afraid of what it means to trust Christ. You see, in order to be saved, you have to first of all acknowledge that you're a sinner before a holy God. And once you acknowledge you're a sinner before a holy God, you're then going to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. And once you receive Jesus Christ as Savior, God is going to start working in your life and he's going to start making you conform to the image of his Son. And that will mean change. And some will not get saved today simply because they fear what it might mean to them to trust Christ. They're afraid that if they let Jesus into their hearts... Everything about their life is going to change. And they're happy with their life the way it is. They fear that Christ will take away their freedom. That Christ will ask too much of them. So the solution is simple. Don't let Jesus in. And people today have not been saved. Some are not getting saved because they would rather be lost than submit to Christ. They'd rather be lost than acknowledge their sinners before a holy God. They'd rather be lost than acknowledge that there is a God who can judge them, but a Savior who can save them. They'd rather be lost than having to change. The 
challenge today then is don't miss out on accepting Christ because of fear of what you will have to change. Because the truth is that when we trust Jesus Christ as the Savior, we get far more than we lose. Being saved is something wonderful. Whatever we have to give up once we get saved is worth the sacrifice. Because in Christ we have eternal life. In Christ we have hope. In Christ we have a home in heaven. In Christ we have sins forgiven. In Christ we have all the riches of his glory. Being saved is a whole lot better than being lost. In the same way though, you know, some saints are not willing for Jesus to be crowned king in their lives. They fear if they make the Lord the Lord of their life that God will ask too much of them. Yes, they're saved. Yes, they know Jesus Christ, their Savior. They're on the way to heaven. They can testify of the glorious salvation that God's given them, but they're not willing to surrender to their Lord. They're not willing to surrender to their King. They're not willing to make Him Lord of their life for fear of what the Lord might ask of them, for fear of what they might lose. So they miss the chance to live the life that God has for them because of fear of what Christ, God might ask of them. You know, beloved, we shouldn't fail surrendering to the Lord if we're saved because what of fear. We shouldn't fail surrendering to his Lordship because we fear what he might, we might have to give up or what the Lord might ask of us. You know, some people are fearful if they surrender to the Lord and give the, the Lord their all that God will ask them to be a missionary to some darkest part of the world and they couldn't handle that. Listen, you know, God's not going to ask us to do something that we don't want to do. And God's not going to ask us to do something that he won't equip us to do it. It's strange, you know, many young people have a fear of the will of God for their lives. They're afraid of what God might ask them to do. But there's nothing to fear when you trust the Lord. There's nothing to fear when you surrender to him. There's nothing to fear when you seek his will for your life. Trusting Christ and yielding to his will is not something to be frightened of. Remember Romans 12, 1 and 2? Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, Holy acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, and be, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And notice this, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I mean, this is God's will for you and me as believers, for us as believers. This is what God says about his will for us. It's good, it's acceptable, and it's perfect. God's will is not ungood for want of a word God's will is not unacceptable and God's will is not imperfect God's will is good if we want what's good if we want what's best in this life then we ought to surrender to the will of God for our life and when we surrender the will of God for our life what we'll find is that that will is always acceptable there's nothing unacceptable that God's will for you and for me and not only that, but God's will is perfect. There is no better will. There is no better direction. You know, my will is not better than God's will. God's will is the best will that you and I can have. It's perfect. 
And we should never fear surrendering to God. We should never fear willingly doing God's will. We should never fear making him Lord of our lives because his will is always good. It's always acceptable. It's always perfect. So when you and I uh, uh, follow the instruction of Romans 12, 1 and 2, and we present our bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, and we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, then we will see God's will accomplished in our lives and it will always be good. There's nothing to fear in following God. They'll be like Herod. And fear what it means to trust Christ. Fear what it means to make him Lord of your life. They'll be like Herod. Surrender to God's will for your life. You know, Herod wasn't the only one guilty of rejecting the Messiah. For we see, secondly, the response of the religious leaders. And they responded with apathy and indifference. Herod responds with fear and antagonism. They respond with apathy and indifference. Look in verse 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, Art thou not least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. You know, when Herod was trying to track down where this baby was born, he goes to religious leaders because he assumes that they know where the baby will know. If anybody knows anything about this promised king, they should. So in verse 4, it says, And when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded them where Christ should be born. He gets the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin together, and he says, okay, tell me, where does this one who is the king of the Jews, where is he supposed to be born? Now think about that for a moment. This is an extraordinary event. Because you wouldn't call Herod a religious man. If you read the history of this Herod at this time in Israel, you'll know that this was one of the wickedest kings to walk the face of the earth. This, this man was an ungodly man. He was a Jew, but he was ungodly. There was nothing religious about him. He was not, you would not find him in the temple worshipping God. You would not find him in the synagogues worshipping God. You would not find him calling in the priests and the scribes on a regular basis to instruct him, to teach him from God's word. This was an extraordinary event. He would normally have no interest in Jewish beliefs. And so for him to now call upon the priests and the scribes to come and tell him where this one who is known as the king of the Jews has been born makes it a more than just an ordinary moment in the life of these religious leaders. And so the question of verse 4, where he demands of them where the Christ child should be born, should have aroused in these religious leaders more than just a scriptural response to Herod's question. I mean, they just matter-of-factly answer him from the Bible. They, he inquires of them where Christ should be born, and in verse 5, they said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus is written by the prophet. And then they quote 
And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art thou least among the prince of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor, and that shall rule my people Israel. They just matter-of-factly quote him from the Bible. But surely what is happening now should have aroused a level of curiosity in these religious leaders that should have moved them to go to Bethlehem. To see this one that is born king of the Jews. I mean, after all, these wise men have just arrived in town. They've testified they've seen a star in the east. They've identified that star as being the star of Jesus, this one who was born king of the Jews. They come to Herod. Herod calls for them to tell him, and they are given the answer from the scripture. Surely they should have been moved at this time to go to Bethlehem to see if indeed the Christ child, the Messiah, had been born. I mean, after all, they had the prophetic word. For thus is written by the prophet, they said in verse 5. They knew the scriptures. They knew that Messiah was coming. They knew that where Messiah was to be born. They knew that this was a promise of God. This was the prophetic word. These are the religious leaders. They knew the scriptures. They knew where Christ should be born. And now they're told that he has been born, and yet they do nothing about it. It's also been pointed out that the entourage of the wise men must have been so impressive, must have been impressive, because the whole city takes note of it. Look back in verse 3. So when Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. These are not just three lonely men walking through the streets of Jerusalem. These are wise men, and we're not told there's three of them, but these are wise men, and they're coming with their entourage. This is a royal procession. This is, this is exquisite. As they march into Jerusalem, nobody misses their arrival. It says that Herod was troubled, but all Jerusalem with him. Everyone was aghast But what they're looking at. There is a massive crowd of people arriving in town. These three, uh, th sorry, these wise men are coming, and it's like a royal entourage arriving, and there's a stir in town. It's a major event. And how do the religious leaders respond? With indifference and apathy. You know, the religious leaders of the day should have been able to recognize when God was doing something extraordinary. Such are the events that have taken place in Bethlehem when Christ was born. Their response should have been one of eagerness to go. To see this one who was born king of the Jews. Their response was one of apathy and indifference. Though they had a head knowledge, their heart was unaffected. And because of their indifference and their apathy, the religious leaders showed a lack of interest and concern about such wonderful news that the Messiah had come. They had the scriptures and all the facts about the birth of Messiah. But they didn't make the trip to Bethlehem. You know, Bethlehem was only nine kilometers from Jerusalem. That's all it is, 9K. And they didn't leave Jerusalem and travel the nine kilometers to Bethlehem 
They just told Herod the facts of the prophecies. As I said, they had the scriptures, they had all the facts. They knew how special Messiah would be. They knew he would be the Son of God. They knew that this one, the Messiah, the Son of God, would become the Savior of the world, that he was the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And they should have known that the one born in Bethlehem was their Messiah. Because all the signs were there. All the scriptural signs were there. And now before them was the evidence of the wise men. They should have known. But because of their apathy and indifference, they not only missed the baby, they missed the Messiah. Because of apathy and indifference, they missed Christ's coming. Many people today think and act like these religious leaders. Barnes put it, oh, sorry, Butler put it this way. Like many in every age and religion, their heart was not in it. It's possible to have our head stuffed full of facts from the Bible and yet not have it applied to the heart. Knowledge of the scripture is not enough. You know, many people today think that they are good enough to get to heaven, that their good works will be good enough to impress God. They don't need Christ, but they won't and they can't because Isaiah 63 tells that all of our righteousness is filthy rags. The very best we can do is not sufficient to get us to heaven. Without Christ and without faith in God, we have no hope in pleasing God. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Hebrews 11, 6. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. And there is a reward of them that diligently seek him. You can't get to heaven by good works. You can't get to heaven by trying and striving to get there. Salvation is by faith in Christ alone. By which we receive God's grace and salvation. If you don't know the Savior today, may I appeal to you not to reject Christ because of apathy and indifference. But I said before, it's too late. Accept him today. Whether you're here or whether you're watching online, may I challenge you, do you know the Savior? Or are you rejecting him simply because you're apathetic to who he is or you're indifferent to what he teaches? And like the religious leaders, you're missing the greatest event of all time. The Messiah has come. The Savior has been born. He died upon the cross of Calvary so that you can be saved. You know him today. But you know, as believers, the challenge is also to us, let's not be indifferent to Christ. He is our Savior. We ought to make him Lord of our lives. Let's not be apathetic towards the prospect of Christ's second coming like these religious leaders were to his first coming. You know, I need to remember that knowledge of the scripture is not enough. It's got to be applied to the hearts. We are to be doers of the word, not hearers only, according to James. Beloved, let's not be apathetic about living for the Savior. Let's live expectantly, with anticipation, faithfully till he comes. 
You know, his second coming is not that far away. The religious leaders of Christ's day missed his first coming. Let's you and I make sure we have our hearts ready for his second coming. Titus chapter 2, please. Titus chapter 2. Verse 11, verses we know well. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify to himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Beloved, you and I are to live uh, godly and uh, soberly and righteously in this present world. And we're to do it while we're looking for the return of Jesus Christ. There are many believers today who are apathetic or indifferent to Christ's return. They're living as if it doesn't matter. They're living as if Christ will never come back. But Jesus Christ is coming again. And as we look around the world, we know that, that coming is closer now than it's ever been before. 2022 might well be the year that Jesus Christ comes back and you and I are to look for that return and as we're looking for his coming we're to live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. Let's not be indifferent. Let's not be apathetic to the prospect of Christ's return. But in 2022, let's you and I be faithful to Jesus Christ. Let's you and I be zealous for Jesus Christ. Let's you and I lift him up as our Lord and live for him as our Lord, that he might get the glory. In contrast to the response of Herod are the religious leaders, and the religious leaders are the wise men. And we'll see their response next week. But in closing today, remember there are many people today who respond to Christ's first coming with either antagonism brought on by fear like Herod, or apathy and indifference like the religious leaders. The question for you and I today is how will we respond to Jesus Christ? Whether you're saved or unsaved, how will we respond to Christ today with fear and, and uh, antagonism, with apathy and indifference, or will we surrender to him, be saved, and serve him as our saviour? During World War II, an air American aeroplane was flying in a mission in Africa. Under the cloak of night, they flew toward their destination in Benghazi. A strong tailwind pushed the plane much faster than they expected. When the instruments revealed they had reached their destination, the crew members apparently kept flying in disbelief of the gauges. So they passed, pressed on, looking for a beacon of light that they'd already past kilometers behind them. Eventually the plane ran out of fuel. The entire crew died when they crashed in the desert. If you don't know the Savior today, don't let the strong winds of life like Herod and the religious leaders cause you to miss the Savior. Look to the Savior. Trust him today. Allow him to forever change your life. Don't be so foolish to think that you can get there on your own. And for those of us who are saved, let's not pack up the message of Christmas with the decorations this year. 
because of that glorious day some 2,000 years ago, let's live godly lives to God's glory in 2022. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this day for your word. We thank you for uh, this revelation into the life of Herod and the religious leaders and how they missed the most glorious event in history because of fear and indifference and apathy. And Lord God, may we not miss the significance of the birth of Christ. If anybody who is unsaved listening to this today, may they realize that Christ came as their Savior. May they not miss the significance of the birth of Christ the Savior. For those of us who are saved, Lord, help us not to miss the significance of the birth of Christ and help us to faithfully serve him in 2022 as our Lord and Savior. Commend your word to our hearts this morning, we pray. Bless me, pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to turn in closing to hymn number.